Good evening. Wow, we kind of fill up a little bit. Thought Eric Tonnes was here or something, right? That's a church joke. All right. Um, hey, could I get a little help this evening from a couple of you reading some scripture? Whenever we kind of dive into scripture at our church, I love just hearing the section read, and uh, I feel like it's helpful for me uh, as I kind of walk through it. I feel like it's helpful for us as we walk through it together. So we're in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in um, chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. It's kind of a little chunk, but I think we'll be surprised how quickly we walk through it. Is there someone that could do chapter 5, uh, verse 8 through the end of that chapter, and someone else that could do chapter uh, 6, verse 1 through 9? So anyone want to take chapter 5, verse 8 through the end? Great, thank you. What was your name? Grant, Grant thank you. Anyone want 6, 1 through 9, or willing to do that? That's right. Uh, yep. Oh, gosh. You helped me today. Hector. Thank you, Hector. Um, guys, thank you for doing that. Appreciate that. All right, let's read God's Word. All right, thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Um, this, this evening, as we're um, in chapter 5 and chapter 6 here in the end of 5, early 6, uh, we're sort of halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the author, whether it's Solomon or someone with Solomonic-type wisdom, he's, uh, he's using this Hebrew structure called chiasm. I'm sure a lot of you have, have studied that before. If not, it's just sort of he's building up to a point, and he's building back down. And he's doing that because he wants you to see uh, the points that are, that are present. And as we talked a little bit about on Sunday, uh, as you study the Bible, maybe you've become aware of this, that the Bible uses different tools to draw our attention to things, right? Sometimes it repeats things because it can't highlight things or underline them. Sometimes it uses tools like chiasm to help highlight certain things and point us to certain things that it really wants us to see. The teacher really, really, really wants us to see something this evening about wealth. And it's perhaps one of the most, um, I think, important lessons in the book of Ecclesiastes, probably one of the main lessons, if not the main lesson, is that the love of wealth is perhaps one of the most meaningless things in life. Seeking wealth because we love wealth in and of itself is likely one of the most meaningless things in life. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of looking out. There's a lot of younger people here um, this evening, and my hope is that this could help set you up to live your life um, a bit more uh, biblically minded surrounding wealth. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of life um, trying to do that and, and succeeded in some ways and failed in some ways. And in this season of life, I'm looking back and, and wishing I would have I would have heeded some of this wisdom. And so as I look at all of you, young people especially, my hope is that this wisdom will speak to you um, pretty clearly this evening. So I want to ask you to, to focus. I think that's what the author wants us to do. He wants us to focus. That's why he's using the structure. He's going to give us five uh, reasons why the love of wealth is perhaps one of the most meaningless things in life. And then he's going to give us one, one solution, which is really, really great. There's one solution we can focus on. But the first reason starts in verse 8 where he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor... And the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by someone higher, and there's yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So the first lesson I think that he wants to tell us is that it is vain to think there will be equity in building wealth. And so to kind of help all of us concentrate and stay engaged and really focus on this, as I mention these sort of main brushstrokes, I'm going to ask you to repeat them with me so that we're all together. Is that all right? So I'm going to say, it is vain to think there will be equity in building wealth. Say that with me. It is vain to think that there is equity in building wealth because there will always be someone who loves it more. And there will always be someone that has more power 
to make more of it and to keep you from making more of it. Isn't that a happy thought? (laughs) Those who love wealth tend to have the power to continue to create wealth. And those people watch over one another. Those people help one another to make and to create more wealth while effectively sort of robbing common people from that same opportunity to build that same kind of wealth. He says it this way, the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. So billionaires watch over billionaires and we call that the Illuminati, right? (laughs) That's what happens. It's real, right? The politicians watch over the politicians and we call that I'm serious, the Stock Act. We call it insider trading. It's what they do. Board of directors and companies watch over board of directors, and the tools they use to do this are called corporate structure or governance, and they can set them up the ways that they want. Owners of companies watch over other owners of companies. They create a policies and procedure manual that benefits certain people and not others. Union bosses watch over union bosses. We call them... Teamsters, right? This, this, the wisdom that Solomon is passing along is as relevant today as it was back then. You might say, well, what are, they, what are they watching over? They're watching over the opportunity to use their power and their position to gain and create greater wealth, even if it means some of the things we talked about last night, like oppression and injustice and unrighteousness. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, This should not surprise us. He literally says, do not be amazed at the matter. And right now, all over the world, people are protesting against these things. In France right now, there's a lot of protest happening surrounding some of these policies that governments are trying to enact, and their government in particular. And it's going to keep on happening and keep on happening and keep on happening and keep on happening. Do not be surprised at this. But what I want to say tonight is also, this should not surprise us, but this should not stop us. It should not stop us from helping all people, all kinds of people, helping them to thrive and to build greater wealth for their families and for future generations. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel kind of thing here. I'm talking about great movements like faith-driven entrepreneurs that are helping Christian entrepreneurs to do good kingdom work, to bless people, to create things like we just talked about, um, to create helpful solutions to problems in the world. And yes, sometimes Christians create big solutions to big problems. And if you've listened to Elon Musk, he talks about this idea that people get paid in proportion to the problems that they solve. So if a Christian solves a big problem and gets a big check, is that a big deal? In my mind, yes, it is a big deal. You thought I was going to say no. I think it is a big deal because those people can use their resources to, to bless God's people, to do a lot of kingdom work. I talked to one of those people yesterday that wants to live off very little money, maybe 10% of his income, and it sounds like he wants to give away about 90%. It sounds like he might do that up here at Hume Lake. What a blessing that is. So this should not amaze us, but it should also not stop us from doing what we can in our work to help people to be paid a fair wage. People in my church are helping people do microenterprise kinds of things. It's vain to think that there is equity in building wealth. There's not. There's some people who have a greater opportunity and they will use that opportunity and they will not allow others to use that opportunity. But even if we do build some kind of wealth and even if we do 
are able to, to steward it in this kind of environment where it, there's not really equity in, in doing it, there are more reasons why the love of money or the love of wealth is one of the most meaningless pursuits in life. And he's going to tell us the second reason in verses 10 to 12. Look at it with me. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves wealth with the income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. You have a bunch of boys in your house? <laughs> yeah, you'll know that's true. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he's little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I think the second lesson that the author wants us to see in his kaizen this morning is this. It is vain to think we can love wealth without worry. You say that with me? It is vain to think that we can love wealth without worry. Now, some of you are like, try me. I'd like to try. <laughs> slap a little wealth on me, and, and I'd love to give it a try. I bet you, if you slap some wealth on me, I probably wouldn't have too much worry. I, I might be the guy that can just handle that. <laughs> I might be the person that can handle that, and I would say, I don't know. The author of Ecclesiastes says there's a couple of kinds of worry that come along with this. You might be thinking, well, what kind of worry could come along with having wealth? Well, we're not talking about having wealth. We're talking about the kind of worry that comes along with, with loving wealth. And the author of Hebrews, or author of, <laughs> sorry, it's another book that we don't really know who wrote, right? The author of Ecclesiastes says, worry it will never be enough. That's the first kind of worry. We can worry that it will never be enough. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. J.D. Rockefeller was asked by a reporter um, how much money is enough, and he responded. We talked about this last night a little bit. Just a little bit more. So the first kind of worry we can have if we love wealth is that we can worry that it's never going to be enough. So my question might be, um, do you find yourself worrying that that you might not have enough. And if so, maybe that's an indication that you could love wealth a little bit more than you should. The second type of worry is this, worry that the more that comes in, the more will go out. Remember he said, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Listen, the more you make, the more you are taxed, right? Some of you are finding that out. Some of you are too young to find that out, but you'll find it out. <laughs> I remember one young person one time asked me, like, what, who is FICA and what is he doing with all my money, right? Like, this is crazy how much money they take. Oh, they're going to take a little bit more. So the more that you make, the more that you're taxed. The more that you make, the more that you what? The more that you spend. The more that you make, the more friends you kind of seem to have. I have friends that are professional athletes, and they just seem to have all kinds of friends. The more money you have, the more friends you have that might want a little bit. And the more money you make, the more requests you have for donations. I was with a guy who's probably a billionaire a few weeks ago, and he's gracious to allow us to use some of his properties for some renewal stuff we do with pastors and their wives. And, you know, it sounds like he's just sort of given up on going to some of these big fundraisers because he gets invited to them all the time. The more you make, the more you tax. The more you make, the more you spend. The more you make, the more friends you have. The more you make, the more invitations you have from other people to give it to them, to transfer it from you to them. And so the more that comes in, the less you see of it. What advantage has their own owner but to see it with their own eyes? And I would just say, if you're worrying a lot about the fact that the more that comes in, the more that goes out, it could be, maybe it's an indication 
maybe you love money a little too much. There's a third kind of worry. He says we can worry about what can happen to it. We can worry about what can happen to it. He says, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, verse 12. Look, the more wealth we have, the more we can worry about it. You talk to wealthy people, and, and you, you know that they're worried that it's going to be mismanaged. Like, some of them even have people that manage it for them. One of the elders uh, that was a part of our church a, a few years ago, he's a wealth manager. He does wealth management for people that have over $100 million, something like that, right? Like these people have full-time people managing all of their wealth because they're worried that someone's going to mismanage it. This guy goes on vacation with them. He becomes like family to them because they're worried that someone else is going to mismanage it. That's a huge worry for people who have wealth. It's a huge worry for people that love wealth. People that love wealth worry that someone's going to defraud them of their money or they worry that they could lose it in the recession or a bad investment. People that love their money worry that it's going to be lost, that it's going to go away. And they say, well, what kind of effect could this kind of worry have on you? There's actually a lot of effects. In terms of our bodies, do, do you know that when we worry in this way about things like money leaving us, that we have sleep problems, we have headaches, we have muscle tension, we have chest pain, we get fatigue, we get upset stomach. I don't know if I should mention this at Hume, Hume Lake, but we have a change in our sex drive. All those things happen to us physically when we worry. In terms of our mood, we get anxiety, we get restlessness, we get lack of focus. We can't pay attention to things. We start feeling overwhelmed, we're irritable, we're anger, angered easily. We become sad or depressed. In terms of our behavior, we start to overreact to things or we underreact to things. We can have angry outbursts. We can withdraw socially. A lot of people are doing that today. And in terms of our spirit... It can really thwart our relationship with God, right? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. That's pretty strong language. That all seems worth it, doesn't it, to have money? Does all that seem worth it? <laughs> does, all that, does all that anxiety and all that worry, what it does to your body, what it does to your mood, what it does to your behavior, what it does to your relationship, with it, that all seems worth it, right, to love money? Do you worry about what will happen to your wealth um, too much? If you do, maybe it's an indication that you love it too much. All right, some of you are thinking already, okay, listen, Matt, I don't build my wealth in unrighteous ways. Like, I'm not like those guys who, like, has one that watches over the other, one that watches the over, one that watches the other. Like, I'm not trying to do some kind of scheme. I'm not trying to defraud people. Matter of fact, I want to help people build wealth for their families. I want to help support their families. I want to help their families be fruitful with the wages that they earn. I want people to be fair and uh, paid fairly and treated well. And, you know, I don't build my wealth that way. And because of that, I don't worry too much about this kind of stuff. And I've got some pretty good strategies for investing. You know, I bought Charles Payne's, you know, master course on Unstoppable Prosperity. I listen to podcasts about wealth. I, the, my favorite one is We Study Billionaires. Anyone listen to that one? We Study Billionaires? Okay, well, billionaires seem to know how to make money, so might be a good podcast to study. So, but there's guys that study that kind of stuff, okay? And you might be saying, like, yeah, I'm in. I, I study that stuff. I don't want to make my money unrighteously. Well, a teacher has something to say to us in that, too, and I think it starts in verse 13, if we're feeling that way. He says, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches are kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. I think the third lesson we learn this evening is that it's vain to think we can be certain of wealth through investing. Can you say that with me? It is vain to think that we can be certain of wealth through investing. Now, some of you have invested well and you've invested wisely. And I think sometimes we think, hey, we're, <laughs> we're pretty savvy investors. Like, we've got a lot of tools. Like, you don't know what I do on my TD Ameritrade account. I'm killing it. You know, I, I get in, I get out. Like, we've got all kinds of things. And we look at them and we think, like, hey, the author of Ecclesiastes in his day, they were dealing with, like, textiles and they were dealing with real estate. Like, when it comes to investment, they had textiles and they had real estate. Like, we have all kinds of investment. We could buy things on margin. We, we've got Bitcoin now, right? We, we, we have so many things that we can invest in. And what that is called is economic snobbery. So if, if you're sitting here this evening and you're thinking, hey, we're a lot smarter than them. We've progressed a lot. I just want to say that's kind of like, I think that's like an economic snobbery kind of approach. Like they were dealing with the same things. Yes, they dealt with mostly textiles and real estate. But if you read the Old Testament, there's some pretty savvy investments. There's some pretty savvy real estate stuff going on if you take a look at it. Every generation, theirs or ours, has one of two problems when it comes to investing, and the teacher shows us what they are. The first one is hoarding instead of investing. Did you see it when he said, there is various, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches are kept by their owner to his hurt. Now, he, he, he uses a term here that's super strong. The term is, it's a sickening evil, <laughs> Like hoarding our wealth, whatever wealth God has given to us, and you might be thinking in the back of your mind, I'm not a very wealthy person, but whatever wealth you do have, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying it's a sickening evil to hoard that. Right? God designed us to put our wealth to work, not to build bigger barns. God designed us to put our wealth to work because it's his wealth. We're gonna get to that a little bit later. Most people that have wealth they have multiplied it somehow through their investing. And so the next actually problem is maybe a more important one to address, and that's that not just that hoarding instead of investing, but investing in a bad investment. Did you see where he said, and those riches were lost in a bad venture? Listen, we might study all kinds of investment strategies and maybe even out of a good motivation, we want to be good stewards of our resources. We want our money to make compounding interest because we want our money to make money so that we can actually give it toward kingdom causes. There might be great motivations in it. We have you know, got a guy that is doing some strategic planning for us. He's sharp, and so he's going to find like the next best thing while also protecting our wealth from too much risk. Like We've got it all sort of dialed in and figured out. But no investment strategy is totally free from risk. I mean, most of you are probably too young to remember the Enron scandal of 2021. Maybe, maybe you have in your memory the Bernie Madoff scandal, right, where Bernie, he was literally the chairman of the NASDAQ, and he did a $64 billion Ponzi scheme. And your generation's Bernie Madoff is who? 
Do you guys listen to the news? Your generation's Bernie Madoff is Sam Bankman Freed? FTX? No one? Oh, yeah. Only the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history almost of the world. And it happened last year. <laughs> right? This stuff is as relevant today as it's ever been. And the point is that there's no investment strategy that is 100% guaranteed. Anyone could lose literally everything overnight when their love for wealth is the driving factor. Here's what happened in the FDX scandal. A bunch of people that love wealth and want so much more wealth, you can't even believe it, they're putting a bunch of their chips in on something that, yes, is risky, but the guy's saying, it's not that risky, and they're like, this is the returns, and they're just pushing it all in, and he's doctoring it all up, and they want more and more and more and more, and it's gone. It is all gone. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, I could have told you that a few thousand years ago. Like that, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that happens. And when we live this way, it produces a kind of life that none of us really want. He ends by saying, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. If you watch any of the interviews of the people that were defrauded by Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX, you will watch them, and you see the look on their face. They are angry. And they're vexed. Some people lost millions of dollars. And you can just see the anger and the seething and the vexation. It just, I wonder how many years it took off their lives. The teacher has given us three good reasons why the love of wealth is perhaps the most meaningless thing in life. I mean, I think we're getting the point, aren't we? But we're all tempted by it, I think. We're all tempted to pursue wealth as one of the more meaningful things in life. That's why the author of Ecclesiastes talks about it so often. But being wise, he doesn't just want us to be sober by it. He just wants to just scare us with the potential problems and the pitfalls. But he offers us a solution. So let's focus on the solution for a couple minutes here tonight. It starts in verse 19. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I think the fourth thing that the teacher tells us this evening is this, that it is good to enjoy the wealth God has given us. Can you say that with me like, like you mean it tonight? Right? It is good to enjoy the wealth that God has given us. So whether we consider ourselves rich or poor, the solution is the same. That's the genius to his argument. Because whether we're rich or poor, the same thing is true. We all tend to really want just a little bit more. That is the temptation, to just want a little bit more. If you're rich, you want just a little bit more. If you're poor, you likely just want a little bit more. All of us are tempted to just think we want a little bit more and to get caught up in the love of money, where the loving money means making $100 more or $1,000 more or tens of thousands of dollars more or millions of dollars more. The temptation is the same. And whether we consider ourselves rich or poor, the solution to the love of wealth that the author of Ecclesiastes is offering is the same. To eat, to drink, to enjoy our work, and to enjoy the fruit of our work, to eat good food, to drink good things, 
to enjoy our families, to enjoy the feasting, to enjoy the meals. Some of the best moments of my life have been around wonderful meals with wonderful food and drinks and, and, and our family and our friends and people that we love the most. And it is this incredible foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a foreshadowing of, of heaven in some way. And it's just, I love that. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, there's a reason why we love that. It's the gift of God. It's a gift from God. God gifts this to us. And when he says this is the gift of God, I want to be clear, it's a common grace gift of God. You and I see unbelieving people doing this all the time. You and I see even ungodly people doing this all the time. God God in his common grace has allowed people to enjoy all kinds of things like like being in the water surfing (laughs) and feeling the water go over your bald head. (laughs) It's pretty good. Um, (laughs) or, Or being in the mountains and just enjoying like the landscape like I did this morning sitting on the front of the lake, right? Or raising children and watching them grow up. Like, Like God has given us so many good common graces and this is one of them. You know what the amazing thing is as a Christian? We don't just get God's common grace, right? We get God's uncommon grace, salvation. We get his uncommon grace. So we get God's common grace in all these things, but we get God's uncommon grace. Like we've, we've received God's grace. We have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We can see now we have the mind of Christ, the Bible says, so we can think rightly about everything in life, including our wealth, including the things that are in front of us. And we can enjoy these things so much more than people who only have common grace. Right? People who have common grace enjoy the eating, the drinking, the feasting. They enjoy uh, the fruitfulness and how it blesses their family. But only people that know the uncommon grace of God can say it's a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only people that enjoy the uncommon grace of God can say, well, that points to this. Only people that experience the uncommon grace of God can say, we want to share those things with others, not just to help them, but to draw them in to the grace of God themselves. I have um, one of our elders who lives two doors down from us. He actually helped Dean and I get our house in a place we really have no business living. It's a long story, but it's a God story. And he's a guy that, um, well, he, I think he has a, a gift-giving gift. And if you have these people in your church, maybe, you, maybe you, you realize this, that sometimes God gives people with, like, a gift of giving. Like, they're super generous. But at the same time, like, they have an ability somehow to generate a lot of income. And he's a guy like that. And what I love about him is that he is just so generous. Like, he literally leaves the key of his SUV on the front tire of his car. He leaves his front door unlocked. Like, all of the things that he owns in life are, are, are there for the people that share life with him. You know, and he supports all kinds of missionaries and organizations. And when you go out to dinner with him, it's, it's, he's not trying to prove anything. He just is generous and just, he just does it. It's so beautiful. <laughs> uh, I love it. It's such a great joy to share the things that we have with other people. The teacher believes that this solution, the solution is enjoying the things that God has given us. Um, and some of you are looking at me a little weird. And I think, I think that's because this is a little counterintuitive to us as Christians. Um, sometimes when someone tells us like, Hey, enjoy the fruitfulness of your work. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the fruit of the wages that you've earned. Like have good food and share those things with your family. Sometimes we just want, we want to hold on so much. We're so concerned that we have to be like 
good stewards, and we should, that we think that that's bad stewardship. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 no. That's the grace of God. It's a gift of God to you. And the teacher believes this is such a good solution. He believes this so much that he returns to his warning and he warns them against actually not believing this. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun. He calls it an evil. And it lies heavy on mankind. Here's what it is. A man to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. It is vain to have wealth without enjoying it. Now, I want to pause and say, <laughs> again, I, I am as anti-prosperity gospel as you, could, as you could be, and if you knew me, you'd know. Um, I'm, th- this point is not that. So as I ask you to repeat it with me, I believe this is true from the Bible, from this book of the Bible, and that's why I made it the point, because the author of Ecclesiastes makes it the point. It is vain to have wealth without enjoying it. That's what he just said. So I'm just going to ask you to repeat it with me. And if you believe it, please say it with me. It is vain to have wealth without enjoying it. All right, we were a little tentative. I get it. <laughs> I get it. But if we love wealth too much to enjoy it, listen to me. It's probably proof that we love it too much. If you love wealth, listen to me, if you love wealth too much to enjoy any of it, to enjoy it, to share it with others and the people that you love, it's probably proof that you love wealth too much. On this principle, I talk about the idea of stewardship versus, and this is kind of a lame term, but it is what it is, scroogership, <laughs> right? Stewardship versus scroogership. Like, I know people who are very, very good stewards of their money, who support and bless so many people in different causes and things. And the joy in their life is tremendous. And I also know people who are so focused on stewardship that they don't enjoy hardly anything. And this, I believe, is one of the warnings the author of Ecclesiastes is sharing. That we can, as Christians sometimes, as God's people, I think we can hide behind stewardship so much that it actually means we have a certain kind of love for wealth. Like we say we're being good stewards, but really we just like seeing the bank account continue to tick up. And we actually probably get more joy out of seeing that bank account tick up than we do the fact that we actually are trying to be good stewards. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to anyone. If, if, you're, it's not my, if you feel any conviction on that, it's not me. It's probably someone else more important than me, <laughs> um, th- th- this is a possibility with some people, and I think that's why the author of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes mentions it. Look, we, we don't know how God withholds joy from this person. It literally says the Lord withholds joy from him, or why. Maybe it's his constant worry about wealth. Maybe it's because he loves wealth too much. But what we do know is what his life looks like. And it's not very good. The author of Ecclesiastes shows us in verse 3 to 5, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The teacher goes on in verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. I think what he's saying in short is a long life without enjoyment is far worse than no life at all. God wants us to enjoy some of the things in life. And I hope that what I'm saying makes sense. I hope that you will enjoy some things in life. Like I hope when, when they ask you, like, do you want a small fry or a medium fry? And the difference is 29 cents. You might say, you know what, give me the medium because I'm feeling fries today, you know. Or, yeah, you know what I mean? Or if you're going out to dinner with your family and your kid asks you, hey, Dad, can I get um, this? And you look at the menu and it's seven bucks more. And you might just tell your kid, yeah, enjoy that. And uh, I'll just trust God to make up the other seven bucks. You know, I think there's moments like that in life that could prove, do, uh, do, we, do we love money too much and we're masking it by saying we're just trying to be good stewards? I think that might be one of the applications for us. Listen, there's one final reason the teacher gives us that loving wealth is perhaps the most meaningless thing in life. And it is in the, our last verses, 7 to 9. He says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity in striving after the wind. I think the last point here in this chiasm structure this evening is something like this. It is vain to look for wealth beyond the wealth we've been given. Maybe that's a little easier one for all of us to believe and say. Will you say that with me? It is vain to look for wealth beyond the wealth we've been given. All of our work, all of our toil is meant to feed ourselves and our families and others. But there is a deeper appetite that's at play here. He's not talking about the appetite for food and good things. He's talking about the appetite, the constant desire for more. We are all wealthy. And you probably heard some pastor, some preacher, some podcaster tell you, if you live in America, you are wealthy. And in part, I believe that is really true. We are all wealthy and we should enjoy the measure of wealth that God has given us. Last night we talked about this a little bit when we talked about a different topic, but we talked about two hands and one hand, and two hands meaning we just we constantly want more, and one hand meaning we're content with the things that God has given us. I think that's the end of the, end of the day, the point. It's vain to look for wealth beyond the wealth we've been given. To constantly pursue wealth because we love it is useless. But to pursue God and use the wealth that he's given us for his purposes, I think is a really beautiful thing. Matter of fact, again, the author of Ecclesiastes says, this is the gift of God. It's a gift of God. And when I think about this kind of stuff, I can't help but think about some of the teaching of Jesus. And I'm just going to end our time by reading a few scriptures. Um, I, have, uh, I have the NLT here with me in front of me. 
um, because I read devotionally in the NLT, and it's Matthew 6, 19 to 34. I, I just want to read it and, and maybe, um, maybe sort of read it over you and see if you hear anything familiar here. See if you hear any kind of ecclesiastical kind of wisdom. Don't store up for shells treasures on earth where moth eats them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your desire of your heart will be also. Sounds familiar. Your eyes like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light in you that you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you, don't worry about your everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than any of them? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Jesus goes on to say, why worry about your clothing and all these things? And he ends by saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Luke chapter 12. I'm just going to start in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. little real estate transaction. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told him a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what shall I do? I don't have room for my crops. Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, (laughs) you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take Take it easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you have worked for? Yes, a person is a fool who stores up earthly wealth, but does not have a rich relationship with God. The gospel kind of tells us something about this as well. Because you and I know that we were created to be rich toward God. Isn't that right? That we, isn't that right? We were created to be rich toward God. I didn't say rich. I said we were created to be rich toward God. So don't, it's not a trick question. Don't be scared. <laughs> we were created to be rich toward God. Is that right? We were created to be rich toward God. Rich in relationship with God. That's how things were in the beginning. The problem is that our first parents in the garden, they thought there was greater wealth, there was something greater, more valuable than being rich toward God. They thought there was a kind of wealth beyond the wealth that we had just being rich toward God. 
And in that moment, as, as our parents sinned against God in the garden and sin entered the world, um, we began to pursue all kinds of other things other than him, including wealth, including a different kind of wealth. See, we were created to be wealthy, rich toward God, rich in relationship with God. And now so many people, and even many professing Christians, as we talked about on Sunday morning, are trying to find our ultimate meaning in so many other things, including the pursuit of wealth. That leads to a lot of problems. Jesus said it led to so many problems that he said the love of money is the root. It is literally the thing that's at the base of all kinds of evil, all kinds of evil the love of money is the root of. And so there was all kinds of evil prevalent in the world, and it's kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And again, the gospel tells us that God was not content to leave us in that place, but he was good to us. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came to us to show us what? To show us what a life that is rich toward God looks like. Jesus came to show us what a life that is rich toward God looks like. Jesus living a perfectly sinless life on our behalf. Paul says it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus came to make us rich toward God again, rich in relationship with God. This is where true wealth is. This is the wealth that matters. This is the capital that matters. This is the account that matters. Being rich toward God. And you know, one day Jesus will return and he will reward us with the rest of the wealth that sometimes we desire. And maybe even for some good reason. Maybe there's some good reasons that you desire more wealth. And it's hard for you to be content with what's in front of you. The gospel says that not only did God create everything, and now there was their fall, now there was their redemption, but there's a recreation. That Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, he's going to reward us with a wealth beyond what we could imagine. And again, don't take my word for it. And this is not a prosperity gospel um, sermon. This is, this, is, this is the words of Jesus here. And let me just, let me just share you, show you where they are in Matthew 19, starting in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And we, know, we all know, if you know the Bible, you know that this is because their view was that if people were rich, were rich because they were favored by God. And we know that's not always true, and so this, that's for a whole other sermon. But the point is this. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? I love Peter. It's such an honest question. Like, we've set aside all of these things to try to do it right. Like, we've set aside these opportunities to try to, like, do it with integrity. We've set aside these things to try to just be content with what's in front of us. Like, we've set aside that. I, I, I could go after that just like the other guy, but I don't because I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way, but, like, what gives? We've like literally given up everything to follow you. So what, what do we get? What will we have? And Jesus says to them something really interesting. He says, 
Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, what else did Jesus say? And everyone, not someone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake. Like this is important stuff. People have decided I love Jesus more than Family. I love Jesus more than real estate. I love Jesus more than the country I'm from. I love Jesus more than the city I grew up. I love Jesus more than, and I'm leaving those things. I'm setting them aside because my sense is he's calling me and inviting me to do that. Jesus says, everyone who has left those things and laid themselves those things down will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I just want you to pause and think about something. You're expecting Jesus to say, we'll inherit eternal life and he'll be okay. He'll be taken care of in heaven. And again, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm just so, part of me is so nervous to preach this passage because it, it's so counterintuitive to, to sometimes what we think. Jesus says it in a particular order. We'll receive a hundredfold and we'll inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The people that love wealth and love money and are worried about it and are pursuing it and are using someone who's over someone who's over someone who's over someone and they're playing into all these schemes and doing it all that way, like the, la the first are going to be last. But the people that have laid it all down and been content with what God's given them and enjoy what they do have now, he says, a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. A hundredfold in this, you know, and eternal life. And I, I just think that is a curious statement. It's Jesus, so I think it's an accurate one. And if you're going to lay these things down, many of you are young people, and you're going to make decisions to follow Jesus into ministry opportunities and missions opportunities and to move to other places and to do things. You're going to lay a lot of things down. And Peter asked an honest question, probably a question you're asking. And some of you are going to go and you're going to, God's going to put you in places where, where you're going to be one of those people who gains a lot of wealth. And my hope is that you will use it and steward it well. You'll enjoy it and you will steward it well for the sake of God's kingdom and his purposes. I think the good news for all of us is that Jesus became poor for us so that we might become wealthy toward God. At the end of the day, as Christians, when we consider the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of wisdom here. At the end of the day, Jesus became poor for us so that we might become wealthy toward God. And that is the greatest kind of wealth. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you'd give us the grace to be content with the measure of wealth that you've given us. I pray that you would help us to steward well the things that you've entrusted to us. I pray you'd help us to enjoy the things that you've given us. I pray you'd help us by your grace to look forward to the day where 
will you reward us? Mostly I pray that you'd help us to look forward to the day where we don't just gain a hundredfold, but we gain a hundredfold and eternal life. And you yourself said, this is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so at the end of the day, the greatest wealth, the greatest treasure we'll ever have is you and being present with you. And we thank you for that. We're grateful. And so we, we say it in your name, Jesus. Amen.